What a blessing it is to be able to assemble this Sunday morning as you and I have done. We're certainly very thankful not only for the membership at Pippin that have gathered this morning, but certainly for our visitors who've come our way today. We're so delighted for each and every person to be here and it's our trust, our honest and desirable expectation that our worship not only will be pleasing unto God, but it will be encouraging and edifying to each and every one of us. You may notice on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson is Abound in This Grace Also. And you may notice that the scripture reading is 2 Corinthians 8, verse number 7, which Brother Bill read just a moment ago. If you're following along, Bill did not make a mistake there. The bulletin actually says 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. That was a mistake on my part, so I just kindly asked him if he would read the 8th chapter, verse number 7, this morning. Some introductory thoughts about this lesson, which are a bit in addition to those on this slide. Isn't it interesting that you and I would be quick to say so very certainly that each and every one of the commands of God is vital, important, and in fact it is expected that you and I, by the God of heaven, will take note of them and do our great diligence to be faithful to them. In Revelation 22 verse 14 it says, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And there it's set before us a significance and a great one at that, as it touches, of course, obedience to that which God has commanded. You may notice, though, about the middle part of that slide, we do come to at least think for a moment about the contribution, the collection that, of course, is taken every Lord's Day here at the Pippin Church of Christ during our worship services. It is in light of that that our lesson today, quite frankly, will be built around it giving thought to what is involved in it and various things in the Bible that touch the subject of the collection. Surely at this point, though, we could say that there's no doubt some who would rejoice at the thought of the, of the contribution, the opportunity to participate in the very nature of this which God has commanded. But I'm sure it's certainly true that there are others that maybe are not so thrilled about it. May I say, as we study that topic this morning, I believe God will cast a very strong, rather challenging spotlight upon those who don't at least find a degree of joy in the nature surrounding the collection. It is with that in mind. It is true some men have abused the collection. You probably know of circumstances or at least have heard in the distance about some who perhaps used the money of the Lord's treasury for ways that were not supported in the Bible. That's a shame. It really is. But today, you and I began a series of lessons last Lord's Day morning. Last Sunday, we studied about a church building. We looked at various places in the Bible in which reference to something like that occurs, and we found the book of God does authorize having a church building. It does authorize using monies, if you please, from the treasury to, in fact, encourage and support the building of such a thing. We found, of course, as that was put before us, that we were able to rest in the full authority that that is in harmony with the will of God. But part two of that comes to your and my personal involvement in that today. As you know, beginning, oh, around six months ago, our congregation, under the oversight of our elders, began to give thought to building a larger auditorium one that would house more people and would in fact be more conducive to a larger number in meeting and would meet the needs of our congregation better and more thoroughly and more fully. 
But as you well know, to make that a reality, money is going to be involved in it. Construction, as we know, is expensive, and our elders have chosen next Sunday, the 14th day of February, 2016, as a day in which a, a special contribution, if you please, our contribution next Sunday, we're going to try to make sure it's involved with and devoted to a consideration of this new building. And therefore, this lesson today is a matter of preparation that you and I might use this week to reflect upon the nature of what God's Word says about that and maybe to do some soul-searching as to what our personal involvement financially might be next Sunday as we begin to make plans for this new building. May we say that, of course, our elders are going to use that in light of appreciating the, the excitement of our congregation relative to it. So please be praying, if you would, for this new building, for our elders as they lead us, and for us as a congregation, that as this building is considered, as plans for it are made, that it'll be done to not only, in fact, be a, a great element of vitality for us, but it will be something that be used for the service of God for decades to come. With that said, what about the collection then? As we think about our involvement in it, Let's start as follows, if you would, with me, please. What is the collection? If we had to use verses in the Bible to help us understand it, what exactly is it? Well, as you notice at the top, you and I know so very well that a great many of the things that God teaches us to do don't have anything to do with money. You and I can show kindness we can extend forgiveness to others. We can pray to our Heavenly Father and do so with fervency and regularity. Those don't cost a penny. And yet we know that the book of God commands that all of that be done. In fact, I would ask you to quickly notice a few verses. Pray without ceasing. You and I notice that teaching of 1 Thessalonians 5.17 perhaps harmonizes well with that Ephesians 5, or rather chapter 4, verse 32 be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. It doesn't cost anything to show kindness. And also it doesn't cost, of course, directly at least, to do to others as we would wish them to do to us. Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7, verse 12. It goes without saying then that these things we've discussed and no doubt many specific ones could be added, but they don't directly attach to the subject of funding or monies. But that stands opposite the next one. We know some of the commandments that God has given to us by themselves would directly involve monies of some form. Consider, for instance, this. The gospel is a message that must be taught. The gospel does not seep into a person's mind by osmosis. It doesn't seep into a person's mind by direct action from the God of heaven. Our God hasn't seen fit that it be done that way. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, we notice a lengthy discussion in which Paul said, By the foolishness of preaching, God has chosen to deliver His message and to save those who will believe and obey it. The message has to be taught. Preaching is involved, and hence, think about for a moment the monies involved, the teaching supplies that are used in our classes in the back. Someone has to pay for them. 
as you and I contribute to the collection here at PIP and monies are utilized to buy the necessary materials for our classes, things our teachers utilize to embed in our youngsters the precious, unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3 verse 8. You might also notice, what about teaching abroad? We know that airlines and in fact other kinds of transportation don't allow people to fly for free. If we're going to send a missionary to Africa or India or anywhere else, money, of course, has to be used to get that man there. Beyond that, what about works of benevolence? The Lord Jesus Christ, as well as other New Testament individuals, encourage us to appreciate that. In Galatians 6, verse 10, for example, to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are the household of faith. If someone meets a very unfortunate tragedy and they come to our elders and ask for assistance monetarily, the Bible encourages us to be willing to support them. In James chapter 2, verses 15 and following, we notice there that when an individual is destitute and yet all we say is be warmed and filled and have a good day, we have not shown any faith. He said that kind of faith is dead. Doesn't it remind us then that we need monies to be able to carry out these works like benevolence, like evangelism? You might notice at the very end, what about edification? The New Testament commands you and me as Christians to edify one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11. Paul highlighted it like this in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. You and I are to be such that our behavior in Christ and the community of believers here at Pippin we are to grow and to admonish one another, edifying always as we minister the faith. Some of that's going to involve some money. Surely then at the bottom, you might notice that isn't it rather interesting that even in the days of Jesus, Judas held the bag. We learn from that passage as well as others that there was a treasury amongst the apostles Jesus and that group of believers, there of course were necessary things for which money was involved. They, you see, were such that there was a bag. Judas held it. At least that helps us appreciate, doesn't it, that this matter of money does not go unnoticed by the God of heaven. He expects us, of course, to use the blessing of our monies in a way to glorify and honor Him appropriately. The last statement on that slide... God has made specification, hasn't He? The collection is how the church gets its money. In fact, we notice as the New Testament presents that before us, that is the way that God has seen fit to provide for the monetary needs of the congregation. It doesn't come any other way. And hence, in light of that, we're going to study then about the collection, about that contribution as we continue in the lesson this morning. As you and I begin this slide with me, why don't we build a foundation by looking at least for a moment at what the New Old Testament might set before us by way of at least some interesting principles. You and I realize as we live beneath the New Testament era, but it's still true that Old Testament can often set before us some interesting and vital matters such that we can at least appreciate the thrust of them. Consider this with me. There were a number of times in the Old Testament when there were various projects amongst the people of Israel. And we might stop to ask, how were they funded? 
That is to say, how was the money made available to pay for the construction, for the buildings, the other matters that were involved in that project? Why don't we begin in Exodus 35 for just a moment. You and I remember that as the children of Israel left Egyptian bondage, they began, of course, their journey throughout that wilderness. And as they came to Mount Sinai, the God of heaven delivered to them a rather amazing law. We often call it the law of Moses. But in the midst of that law, we remember that God gave order for the construction of a tabernacle. We notice in Exodus chapters 25 through 40, in many ways, 15 chapters detailing not only that tabernacle, but the fine-tuned construction that went into it. Could we pause at chapter 35 just a moment? So where did all the items come from that allowed them to build it? There was a lot of gold required, a lot of silver. There was a lot of fine scarlet and wool and other things to build the tapestries of it. Where did all of that come from? May we pause to notice it was not a divine miracle from Moses that made it. It was not a divine special collection in light of something only Aaron did. Rather, we learn in Exodus 35 verses 4 through 29 that God through Moses commanded the people, you bring your gold and you bring your scarlet and wool. You supply it. So it was the free will offering of the people that made available the things that they used to construct the tabernacle. May I also pause to ask us to notice that in Exodus 36, verses 3 through 7, an interesting statement is made. The people brought so much stuff, the gold and the other matters needed, that in fact those who were overseeing the collection said, tell the people to stop bringing it. They've brought, in fact, not only enough, but there's far too much. Isn't it interesting to see the liberalness, the liberality of their generosity on that occasion? They gave so much that they had to be restrained in their giving. What about another example? In Ezra chapter 1, verse 4, and later in Ezra 7, verse 16, many centuries later in the Old Testament, we find that there was now time for the construction of the temple. Not the first temple, mind you, but the second one. And we remember that on that occasion, something is said about the free will offerings of the people as they made the available matters for the construction of that building. One more time, isn't it interesting that the people generously gave? Maybe one final example. When you and I think about the ongoing work not just in the one-time construction of the tabernacle, but God made an interesting statement, in fact, a commandment of them in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 and following. It was a statement that had to do with every time that they themselves came, that there was a collection to be made. When the people came to the tabernacle, they made an offering. That offering included money. They gave the so-called tabernacle tax, God commanded it. By now, I suppose we can see in light of all of them that embedded in the nature of the Old Testament was the free will offering of the people for the purpose of sustaining that particular building or work of God. Why don't we come to the bottom of that slide and perhaps make reference to a term that we've each heard about and even thought about. What about the tithe? T-I-T-H-E? 
that is, of course, something that we found embedded in the Old Testament, wasn't it? I might ask you to consider, though, an earlier occasion in which we see it for the first time in all of the Bible, even before the law of Moses was ever given. Turn back the clock as early as Genesis chapter 14 with me. On that occasion, we remember Abraham was the biblical character on the stage of things. And on that occasion, Abraham had taken a regiment of individuals and gone and rescued Lot. He had rescued him from some who, of course, had in fact waged war. Time and again, we appreciate that when he returned, the text says that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Isn't that fascinating? Here was the hero of faith, one of the greatest patriarchs of the Old Testament era, and yet he paid tithes. Abraham seemingly recognized well, even at that early stage in time, the necessity of contributing to the work of the Lord. He paid tithes. That brings us to a number of occasions when the tithe was especially mentioned in the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 14, God's people were commanded to tithe. We remember that word tithe carries with it the thought of a tenth. Specifically, we notice in Leviticus 27, that tenth not only included money, it included things like seed, things like fruit, things like the size of the herd, things like the size of the flock. They were required to tithe more than just money. It was a number of additional things as well. Suffice it to say, in light of all of that, the Old Testament stated a number of things about the giving of His people for the support of that which was the chosen work and effort of God. Our interest, no doubt, is more keenly attached to the New Testament. As we begin to move in that direction, I wanted you to at least summarize some of what we had just seen on that previous slide. That summary highlighting this. If they were required to give 10%, that included the tithe per se, may we not forget that there were additional free will offerings over and above that. And that tenth, of course, was again far more inclusive than merely of money. I suppose it would be fair to conclude that Israel is portrayed in a very negative light at one very strong portion of the Old Testament. Now, we stated earlier that on the day that the tabernacle was built, they gave so generously. But things changed mightily by the time we'd reached the book of Malachi. An interesting reading is found in Malachi chapter 3, and it is to that I've turned your attention. The people had reached a point in their relationship to God where they were not giving very well. In fact, they were withholding their giving, and God very strongly rebuked them for it. He rebuked them in words like this, Will a man rob God? And they had the nerve to ask, How in the world could a man rob God? And he said, You have robbed me, because you haven't contributed to me and given to me in the way I commanded. Hard to believe they had the nerve to ask him the second question, but they did, and he answered it. And he said, if you would only give to me in a way that you have been prospered to do so, I would open the windows of heaven and pour upon you far more blessings than you to this point have enjoyed. It perhaps would be well to notice that when we're stingy with God, we're only hurting ourselves, Because He will give us far more than we could ever give to Him. The people of Israel found that out. 
as you and I come near the close of that one, those Old Testament principles set the stage for that to which we're going to turn in the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about our collection, about the things so vitally related to it? We're going to look at a number of these verses. I would invite you to, to look at them one by one with me. In these 27 books of the New Testament, we find a number of references to collection, to contribution, to giving, a number of words used to describe it. Our focus is going to center on those two chapters in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8. I would ask as you revisit that, uh, that pair of chapters, we're going to look very interestingly, but we're going to start here. Isn't it still true that God has made statement, and a very specific one at that, about the way in which His church is to be supported financially? In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, let's notice specifically verses 1 and 2. As Paul came to the close of this 1 Corinthian letter, there were a number of interesting statements. They had asked him a number of questions, and he, of course, answered them by the authority and will of heaven. But you may notice in verse number 1 it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. The church in Corinth. It still is true that they had had their problems and difficulties, and we'd seen so many references to that in the first Corinthian epistle. But as we arrive at the 16th chapter, Paul said, Now, now, here was a matter they were to appreciate. They were to keep it thoroughly in mind. And it goes on to say, concerning the collection, there's an interesting word. Here was a particular accumulation of a gathering, if you please, of something that was to benefit the saints, he says. We know from this passage and others in the New Testament that refer to it, he's talking about a monetary collection. You and I would basically make easy reference to the contribution that we enjoy every Lord's Day. He says, upon the first day of the week, he told them when this collection was to be made. It was only on Sunday. That's when the God of heaven has authorized this collection to be taken. And he goes on to say, let every one of you. Notice this is not given by families, by tribes, by communities. It's individually. Every one of us stand beneath the banner of a passage like this one. Randy Bybee, as you've been prospered, make sure you contribute to the work of the Lord. And you can put your name in that same sentence. Isn't it fascinating that twice in that sentence a personal pronoun is utilized? Did you notice? Let every one of you lay by him in store. Now we realize as the appreciation of that is made, he goes on to say, as God hath prospered. You'll notice that the word tithe doesn't occur. There's a higher principle at stake, isn't there? God doesn't tell you and me specifically other than to say, as you've been prospered. Those who've prospered little have every right by the God of heaven to contribute little. But those who've prospered much are expected by God to contribute much. The interesting parts about that, he closes the verse by also saying, that there be no gatherings 
And that word in Greek carries a thought of collection. There be no collections when I come. Paul was making a plan to arrive or to come into that area. And he says, when I come, there needs not to be any last-minute put-togethers. It needs to be ready. And so every first day of the week, you contribute as you've been prospered so that it'll be ready when I come. Sounds like a wonderful description, doesn't it, of a collection, a treasury in which there's an accumulation of things so that it'll be ready whenever it's needed. Let's look at another verse. You remember as Paul made reference here to the collection for the saints. Specifically, Paul had in mind a collection for the benefit and benevolence of those who were living in a very difficult area. Romans 15, 26 and following tell us a little more about that. The saints in Jerusalem, or at least in the Judean area, were having a very hard time. They were under extreme persecution from the Judaizers in the city. And Paul was making a collection for the benefit of those very destitute saints in that area. This collection was specifically going to be used in part for that. With that in mind, look at the next statement then. To the same church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Could I invite you to notice again, we won't read all the chapter, but nearly all of the chapter has relation to this. I'd like to pick a selected few of the statements if I could. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. Paul makes reference. Not only were the churches in Corinth, the church in Corinth motivated along this line. He says, even the churches in Macedonia are giving. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, we notice the churches of Galatia. The collection, you see, is not just for one church. Every faithful congregation of the Lord's body should desire and with excitement participate in that contribution. It says in verse 2, Even though those in Macedonia were in a great trial of affliction, times were hard, affliction was great, and poverty was extensive. He said, despite that fact, they abounded under the riches of their liberality. They gave and they gave a lot. Doesn't that say something about the mindset, the characteristic of those that lived in Macedonia? Let's read on. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift. And take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did. Not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. In his description of those brethren, he says, They gave more than what I would ever have expected. They gave beyond their seeming ability to do so. And they prayed that we'd take it and use it for the utility of the work of God. But he says in verse number 5, they first did this. He says they gave first their own selves to the Lord. They made a mental commitment, a dedication, a devotion, if you please, and the money was just a manifestation of that commitment that they had made. What a great commendation is paid to these of Macedonia, wouldn't you say? As you read further in that chapter, notice now verse number 7 in our lesson text this morning. 
Therefore, as ye, Paul now addresses the church in Corinth, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. To that church in Corinth who formerly had known an array of problems, some time had passed between the first and second Corinthian epistle, and now things were better. That individual who had been living in fornication, he repented. He came back to God. And Paul admonished the church to open arms, accept him back in faithfulness. Other problems, as we learn in 2 Corinthians 7, had also been taken care of. And now he says, Inasmuch as you abound in faith. Apparently the faith of the Corinthian church was strong and vibrant in utterance. They apparently had those who could preach and proclaim the glad tidings, the good message of the gospel, knowledge. They were blessed with the characteristic apparently of good teachers and the congregational knowledge was strong in that area by this time. In all diligence, there was a group of people committed to God and they were diligent in their perseverance and in your love to us. The church in Corinth exhibited love to Paul. They exhibited a faithfulness with respect to apparently the truth he had delivered in the first Corinthian epistle. The verse then closes, See that ye abound in this grace also. The grace he's talking about is the collection. To the church in Corinth, he says, If you're abounding in love and in grace and in these other things, make sure you abound in your financial contribution as well. For the vitality of that church, for your ability to be a fellow worker with God. In fact, as he develops that thought more thoroughly, Look over to verse 11 of that same chapter with me. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to the hath not. That congregation, Paul challenged them. You need to be fervent, and you need to abound in this grace. Because isn't it true, as he just expressed to them, you'll notice if there's first a ready mind, a willing mind, it's accepted according to what a person has and not according to what he doesn't. As you look on that slide, this was then to be a free will matter. It was between a person and his God. Paul wasn't telling them how much to give. But as you've prospered, as you are abounding, if you're thankful for what God has done for you, you should express that, among other things, of course, by your financial contribution to His work. Let's read further. In chapter number 9, as Paul continued to discuss these matters, you'll notice we come to this. Beginning in verse number 6, But, I say, but this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. A person shouldn't give because he thinks he has to. He shouldn't give because he feels compelled to do it. Based on these verses, it should be a willing personal decision 
his desire, of course, to simply, as he's been prospered, to appreciate the bounty of blessings he's received and to give in correspondence. You'll notice in verses 11 to 13, you appreciate in this same chapter how that money must be used, how it was used then. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth us through thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints. Did you note the language with me? This money, Corinthians, you're giving, it will supply the wants of the saints, the needs of those things spiritual in character, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whiles by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. That money that they were going to collect, it was to be used not only for the benefit of those needs there in the Corinthian area, but he says in that verse number 13, for distribution, of course, working the things of God unto all men. As you and I again give thought to what we are undertaking here at the Pippin Church of Christ, the construction of a building... And of course, it's our collection that's going to fund it. Would you again be prayerfully considering what you're able to contribute next Lord's Day? Thinking about how that it fits into not only your personal devotion to God, but in the way that can be used to push forward the nature of God's work at this place. And of course, wherever we may, by the blessing of God, send the blessed message of the gospel. As we come to the close of that slide, you'll notice... The New Testament doesn't mention expressly this matter of tithing, of course. But these final thoughts, and then the lesson this morning will be yours. I've selected this section out of 2 Corinthians for a, a considered uh, subject in our discussion this morning. But you'll notice what a great position it puts you and me in. As Paul discussed this matter of this monetary collection, he lifted the Corinthians rather highly and pointed out to them that by your contribution, you're able to be a fellow laborer, a fellow worker with God. We know that God's all-powerful. If He wished to do so by a miracle, He could pop a couple of billion dollars into existence, but that isn't the way He works. His commandment is you and I contribute, and if the church has its funding, you and I must give it. We must contribute to it. And when we do, our, con our consideration, of course, is that it must be used in the way the New Testament authorizes. No wonder you'll see that as you and I are fellow laborers with Him, we take such satisfaction because the glory doesn't rest with us. The glory rests with God. And once this building is completed, we trust that, of course, all the credit, and all the glory will never be with any one of us, not with our elders, not with us as members. To God be the glory. As we think about this building then in that light, the closing thought of this particular lesson today puts before us a thought-provoking consideration. Thought-provoking in the following way. You'll notice that as you and I just noted in verse number 8, I read just a moment ago from 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. I read verse 7, but notice what Paul then said in verse 8, and we'll use that to close our lesson. 
And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As you read that verse in light of verses 1 and 2 of the same chapter, Paul had some interesting things to say about the lack of giving in, in, in Corinth. We should say that we, as you can see on the wall, we're blessed with a contribution here. A group of people who love the Lord. And every Lord's Day we give, and we do so not grudgingly, but we do so cheerfully, excited about the way that funding is used. May I say again, though, our elders would like next Sunday for us to think in, in collective consideration about this plan that, we've, that we're putting in place, a building. Our contribution next Sunday will be a reflection of our commitment to that building, what's going to go, what's going to go into its construction. Please again be praying about it and give next Sunday. May each of us do so in light of passages like we've studied this morning. It might be that there's someone in the audience today who is not a faithful member of the body of Christ. It may be, of course, too, that you have been touched by the teaching of the Bible. It's not my teaching. It's not any human teaching. Paul told that same Corinthian congregation, 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The only message is Christ Jesus. We're excited about the faithfulness exhibited by many, but we're troubled by the lack in faithfulness by others. Why not come to the Lord this morning? Why not make things right between you and the God that loves you? Why not make things right so that your soul is in a safe condition? If you have never obeyed the gospel initially, what a great day it'd be. You need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. John 8, 24. You need to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. You need to confess the sweet name of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, Acts 8, 37. And you need to be baptized into Christ, Mark 16, 16. If you have known that faithfulness and if you've known the blessings that come with it, all spiritual blessings in Christ, but you've erred from it, you know what a dangerous condition you're in. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27.1 You aren't promised tomorrow. Why not come before the Lord today? Confess those things known publicly. Beseech us as a congregation to pray to God on your behalf and we'll do it. And God's promised to forgive upon your repentance and confession. If today we could be of help to you, we would love to do it. God wants you to make that step that you need to make. I hope your heartstrings are being played rather notably. And if you need to come, why not do it now while we stand and sing?